I'd have you turn with me at this time to some of the creeds of the church, and then to the Word of God on which the doctrine is based, the doctrine of the Trinity. First, Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. I believe we're matching up here. I have the correct Psalter hymnal, page 15 in the back. And then we're going to turn to the Belgic Confession, and I thought also it would be helpful to turn to the Athanasian Creed. So first of all, the Heidelberg Catechism, page 15, and question and answers 24 and 25. Now, just to remind you, it's been a few weeks since we've dealt with the Catechism's instruction in doctrine. Uh, we have just set forth, or we have just heard in a prior sermon uh, about faith and what is true faith and what we must believe and so on. What Lord's Days 8 and following are all about is that what we must believe. It's all unfolded for us in different Lord's Days. Lord's Day 8 summarizes it all. What we believe is who we believe. We believe in God triune and his work of salvation. A basic a basic thing, of course, for anyone who believes and who would have a witness to the world about our faith, who we believe or what we believe. Lord's Day 8. How are these articles, that is, the articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Three parts. Question 25, since there is but one God, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And then the answer is, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. There is the Catechism's brief exposition of the Holy Trinity of God. This is the orthodox faith, that is, what the fathers have believed it's basic. Let's turn to the Belgian Confession, also Article 8. My Psalter, hopefully yours, that's page 72. Article V111, Roman numerals for 8. Article 8, God is one in essence, yet distinguished in three persons. You'll notice that this is a little more elaborate than the Heidelberg Catechism's exposition of the Trinity. According to this truth... That God is one in essence, yet distinguished in three persons. According to this truth and this word of God, we believe in one only God, who is the one single essence in which are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things visible and invisible, the Son is the Word, wisdom, and image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, God is not by this distinction divided into three, since the Holy Scriptures teach us that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have each this personality distinguished by their properties. But in no such wise that these three persons are but one, only God. So three persons distinct according to their personalities, but one God. 
Hence, then, it is evident that the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. Nevertheless, these persons, thus distinguished, are not divided nor intermixed. For the Father has not assumed the flesh, nor has the Holy Spirit, but the Son only. The Father has never been without his Son or without his Holy Spirit. For they are all three co-eternal and co-essential. There is neither first nor last. For they are all three one in truth, in power, in goodness, and in mercy. So you have the Belgian Confession's Reformed Confession of the Orthodox Faith. And of that Orthodox Faith, let's turn back to page 5 and the Athanasian Creed, named after Athanasius, a champion of Orthodoxy for the Trinity. This has been called, this creed, the Symbolum Quiconque, big theological Latin term, whosoever taken from the first words of this creed, whosoever will. And it reminds us of the importance of believing this creed and this creed's doctrine of the triune God. For it says, whosoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. That's not Roman Catholic. It's the universal faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. It is not a little thing, of course, then, to deny the Trinity. It's a matter of life and death that we believe the Trinity. And the Catholic faith is this. Here's the exposition in great detail of the triune God, that we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. There is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreate, the Son uncreate, and the Holy Spirit uncreate, none as creatures. The Father incomprehensible, Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. Also, as also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensibles, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, and the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. I'm going to stop there and encourage you individually and families to read the rest of this creed uh, for your devotions this afternoon. Uh, these are truths into which the church has been led in the light of the Bible and which we would now expound as the basis for this creedal expression of the triune God in our catechism and in all the faithful creeds of the church. So we're going to turn to John 1.18 at this time, or John 1, verses 1 through 18, and read one of the outstanding passages for the truth of the Trinity.
emphasizing here the divinity Son, who is called the Word of God. Let's read here reverently, because great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, referring to the Jews. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This said, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Thus far we read the Word of God, which is the basis for a sermon on the Trinity, entitled Trinity Logos, or Word and incarnation. We're thinking Christmas, beloved, and it's just part of our culture. Sometimes I think more part of our culture than part of our Christianity that leads us to think at this time of year of the birth of the Savior. But when we think of, Christ, uh, of, of Christmas, we're thinking of a passage like John that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we have our sayings in contrast to the culture, which says it's about our gift-giving. We speak of the one who gives himself the greatest gift of Christmas, the gift that keeps on giving, because giving is salvation. And so we would come away from the culture, but we're drawn almost irresistibly to thinking about the birth of Jesus and our of it at this time, and so we have some Advent series of sermons, and even the minister is inclined to Christian uh, doctrine in light of Christmas time and incarnation. It's not a bad thing, just so long as we make it not simply something to please the culture, but so that we might stand out 
from the culture. And we want to consider then this trinity, but in light of John, you see, John is a peculiar gospel. Uh, that is, it's not what's called a synoptic gospel. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first three gospels in the Bible are called synoptics. They look with an eye toward the same thing, that is, the history of Jesus, the wisdom sayings, the parables, the miracles of Jesus, the history of Jesus, his birth, his death, and his resurrection, his ascension, and so on. And, and, and they speak of that, though, more clearly in Acts and the other epistles as well. But John starts differently, ends differently, and has a different focus. It starts with what's called a prologue to John, uh, and the prologue really to all that John would say. What John would say is that this Jesus who's come in the flesh is truly the Son of God. In John chapter 20, in fact, he leads us with the whole purpose of all the miracles that are uniquely set forth in John, that these are written that you might believe, and that by believing you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, why, why John does this prologue before all of the history that he records, a lot of which has to do with the last week of Jesus' life, is because he wants to introduce theology into the whole thing. He wants us to believe in this one who became flesh, who nevertheless is a unique one called the Word of God and very God himself, the creator, the wonderful one in our midst, who is God in our midst, who Mary needed because it was Mary's God and Savior, and whom we need because he's our God and our Savior, he with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So here revealed the Trinity, elsewhere revealed the truth of the Trinity, we believe it. That's how the catechism is leading us, reminding us, whatever you believe about, say, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the church, and everything else, you're believing in God and believing these things of God and his work. So Trinity, I can do no better, really, than the creeds of the church, three of which I just read for you. The church has been led into the truth early on that God is triune. This is the uniqueness of Christianity as its grace, as is everything about it, but this, starting at the truth of God, is where we start and where we part ways with Muslims, with Jews, with Mormons who deny the divinity of Jesus, and with every humanist of every stripe who believe in no God at all. We believe in Trinity. Now, what is that? That's to believe that there's one God, one God, and yet three distinct persons. So we distinguish between one God in his being and three persons in that one being. The three does not deny the one. The one does not deny the fact that there are three. Three not of a different kind, but three aspects, could we say, of the being of God, 
personal aspects, persons, subjects, who do things, who think things, and so on, but who are not different. They partake of the oneness. And so you have this concept that's hard to get your, your mind around, of course. And Paul will say to us and writes to Timothy that there is the great mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, and this reminds us a trinity is a truth that's way beyond us. I love the fact the Athanasian Creed, part of which we just read, which to believe is necessary for our salvation, reminds us that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are incomprehensible. Not unknowable, but they are so high in their being and in their persons that we can't grasp it. The first response of the Christian, therefore, and to you in this congregation and to me, is that we ought to be very humble. Why do we believe the Trinity? Something so outlandish, as it were, and a stumbling block to the world. Why don't you have an easier God to believe in? Well, beloved, in the first place, because the Bible reveals this triuneness of God. And secondly, if we had a God easy to believe in, we would be God. God is, by definition, above us, transcendent, higher than you can imagine, higher than anything on this earth or any concept of ours of what God ought to be like. The oneness of God has to be brought out at this point. The truth of Trinity does not deny the oneness of God. John speaks of the Word in the beginning, who was with God and was God, referring to Jesus. He was God when God created all things. He's not denying that God is one. When Jesus comes into the flesh, he's not another God. He's the one God manifest this way as a Word, a Logos, a Son. Oneness is, in fact, what is emphasized in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's the Shema written for the Hebrews, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In teaching the people of the New Testament, the Corinthian people who are who are catastrophic in their carnality and carnal in their catastrophe of a church. They needed to remember the oneness of God in dealing with people who were eating things offered to idols, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, I believe, that there are many gods, but they're not really gods, and there is only one God, there is one God, that's what he reminds them of at Corinth. In fact, it's everything that the Hebrews were taught to believe uh, mostly as they were going into the land of Canaan. The Decalogue, which was headed and is headed by the first commandment, have no other gods but me, was written to a people that was going among the land of the pagans, the Canaanites, who had many gods. And so God said to Israel, before they got there, I'm preparing you, don't go after them, have only one God, there's only one. And the prophets pick up on this, there's only one God, there's no other like him, there's just one God, 
We worship one God. There's not a multiplicity of gods. The pagans and the Greeks and so on may have their pantheons of gods, but they're not gods. They're making things up. The devil might tempt people to themselves be God because they're so great, they think, but they're no gods either. There's only one God. He's above the creator of the heavens and the earth. And this is the Old and the New Testament teaching. This God is three persons. That's the second thing about the Trinity. There are manifestations of God which the church has been led to call persons. Persons of God who are distinct from each other. There's the Father. And as the Catechism brings out, he's God the Father and our creation. Speaking of the work of God and the working out of God's revelation in what's called the economy of salvation. God works it out and reveals himself to us as he works out salvation as the creator. He's the father. But there's the son as well. And look at the gospel according to John. The word was with God. We can read literally he was toward God. And some have said that he was aiming toward God all the time. But he was also... God himself, the word, was God. Besides that, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, these things can only be said of God. So the identity of the word with God is set forth here, not only as to his person and being, but also with regard to his work, his working of creation, his having life and light to give to people. This is sound Christian doctrine. And if it's boring, if it's tedious, if it's simply incomprehensible, and that's all it is to us, and we'd rather be somewhere else learning somewhere else, shame on us. Because, beloved, it's glorious doctrine. All the doctrine of the Bible is for our profit, not just for our falling asleep by. It is wonderfully for us to reveal to us the greatness of God because his word was God in the beginning with God and who is now the life and light of men is a savior. And this is the wonderful truth of Christmas. God saves us in the word and as the word incarnate in Bethlehem as a babe, and then growing and learning, teaching, performing miracles, dying on the cross, and rising again. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not mentioned here in uh, the Gospel according to John from the outset, John 1, but the Holy Spirit is truly God. With the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit was at creation, creating. That's why one of the creeds calls the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life. That seems to be what the Bible emphasizes of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 104 of Providence. You send forth thy spirit and they are created, the, the psalmist of Providence speaks. But way back in Genesis, there was the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit saying in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. 
And so Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9, I believe it is, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them, everything in the heavens and the earth and the universe was made by the word of God and by the breath, Hebrew ruach, spirit of his mouth. God, by the word and by the instrumentality of this spirit, this force not only, no, a person was creating all things and he is the God of our salvation, creation, and providence. So later on in the book of Acts, it will be the case that the Holy Spirit is lied to and Ananias and Sapphira are struck down because they lie not to men but to God. Lying to the Holy Ghost when lies to God. So it's not going to be my place here to prove exhaustively that Jesus is God or the Spirit is God, that there is this God who is Trinity and three persons and so on. For that, I reserve other sermons as we expound the truth that is in the catechism of the creed. For the creed will speak not only of God the Father in our creation, but of God the Son in our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, and that those points were going to bring out the divinity of each of the persons of, of the Trinity. This is something for a later date. But here, something a given. A given. This is what we believe of God. He is triune, one God, three distinct persons, and about that, they're distinct in revealed ways. The Father is the Father of creation, and the Son proceeds from the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from both, and the Son is the only begotten of the Father. The Father's not begotten. The Spirit's not begotten. So they have these differences, personal differences, and yet, they are one God. Now here, beloved, we come to what I would make uh, as a, an emphasis of this sermon. And that is this whole beautiful concept here of the Word of God. Throughout John, that's a beautiful emphasis that John would bring Jesus is the Word of God, and God is a Word. God sends us Jesus, and he speaks to us, communicates to us, reveals something of himself in this Word. Now, I want to say to you that theologians have wrestled with this idea of Trinity, this truth of Trinity, and what God has revealed of himself as triune. And I'm referring, even before we get to John 1, to the view that the God who is triune is revealed in all of creation. People have reminded us that in Romans chapter 1, after all, we have the truth that Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that the heathen, they knew God, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. So the idea in Trinity, before you even get to the Bible, is that this is something of God that is revealed in the creation. You also have John 1 reminding us that the word is the light that shines and all men coming into the world are given light by the word who is the light. So there's something of the word Jesus even, the light of the world that people know about. Now here, I would remind you of what theologians and others even have found of the Trinity, even in creation itself. These are called vestigia, or uh, uh, reflections of the Trinity, vestigia theologiae, reflections of the Trinity, vestiges, things left over or imprinted upon creation. Don't mean to be so technical here, but these are important terms. So Augustine saw this in creation. And what I'm leading to here is that this will be very important for us to understand how to communicate to people the Trinity. So for example, Augustine saw water in its three states as vestigii, or reflections of the Trinity. There's a solid ice, see that soon. There's a liquid, there's a gas state of water. But Augustine especially thought of the human being as a vestigii of the Trinity. In the mind of a person, the soul of a person, the body of a person, three aspects of being, but no one would say they're not part of the being, as no one would say that ice is not water because it's ice and it's not liquid, or ice is not water because it's gas, and you can't see this is water vapor, that that's not water either. They're all water, but in different phases. Well, of course, because God is incomprehensible, and we preach that, you can't really compare God to things in the earth and come up with God. Well, theologians and even philosophers, however, have themselves discovered, they think, something of the Godhead of God, the triuneness of God, in what they call is the Logos principle. Now, this is John. This is the Word of God. And it's not just for theologians, but for everyone who has their Bible in front of them who understands that God wrote in words. The word word here, in every place, just about in John, is Logos. 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 What is John doing when he says in the beginning was the Word? That's a strange way to describe a God. Nevertheless, the God. In the beginning was the Word, and this Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is that? Well, what John is saying here is that there's a communication in Jesus, an exhaustive one, for to behold this Word is to behold God, like unto nothing else. But others, you see, have found a word sort of principle in the general revelation of God. And in their own minds, they've been led 
by this natural light, as it were, to think about the logos behind things. Be with me here all the way to the end, beloved. So, for example, there's things, but the logos behind them, great thinkers have said, unites them all to one another. There was a philosopher named Pythagoras. Perhaps some of you homeschoolers even know that. There's a Pythagorean theorem. A squared, B squared, equals C squared, triangles, and so on. Well, Pythagoras found a law behind the math. Others found and discovered something, some oneness, behind all of the reasoning of creatures and so that we all could come to some understanding of what virtue is, for example, or what truth is, that there is one truth even though people have different opinions of the one truth. It's the age-old thing of the wrestling of all God's human creatures with the truth of the one and the many, and the many and the one. How can there be unity in the midst of all of this variety. And what God was doing and is doing, I believe, even in this general revelation that there is one God and there is one truth and yet diversity is reminding us of his very nature. He is one and not many but three at the same time. So now, John here is speaking not merely to philosophers, but he's speaking into the context of the Greek and Roman world. They knew about these things. There were people in the 5th century BC who were speaking of the Logos principle. John uses the word, the Logos, as this thing that unites us all as humans and leads us to truth this oneness among the very different cultures and so on. And even the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in chapter, chapter 17, remember when he goes to Mars Hill and there's many gods? He speaks of the one God among the many who's not different than their concepts of God, but he's fully revealed in Jesus. He's the unknown God. That's Acts 17. And Paul saw it fit to bring this idea of the one and the many, the one God who is at the same time a plurality of persons to the people that were his audience. John may be doing the very same thing. After all, John writes to Hebrews, and there was a Hebrew theologian philosopher named Philo, who came up with the same things about the Logos from the Old Testament. The word and wisdom principle of God, that there is one and yet there is this wisdom about God that is an expression of God. Can we call it a word? Already in Proverbs 8. And Philo, Philo without even the revelation of the Holy Spirit, would speak of this word principle, this logos, as an only begotten son of God. Now, there, there's something here. There's something here that 
Your servant has stumbled across, I should say, been thinking about for a while, that, that ought to enrich our witness. Because the world itself knows something of God, and they're not without excuse. And they even know something of the Trinity of God. And here John comes, not borrowing merely from philosophy and uh, Jewish theologian, but inspired of God to speak of what is in the fullness of time fully revealed and clearly revealed in Jesus the Word. No one, he says, verse 18, has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, the Word, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So what John is saying is, I'm not preaching a strange God to you. I'm preaching the one God you know. I'm inspired to preach of the one God you know. But this God is now revealed to us in this particular word, who's not some principle, who's not some life force only, who's not some only begotten it, but he's the person of the Son of God. You see, Christianity has a message. It has a message of this God, this God who is one and who is triune, that far superior he is to all of the gods and all of the philosophers and all of the philosophies because he's great in this and incarnate as well. This is the paradox, if we could call it that, of John 1. This word, this logos, who was with God and who is God, who has made flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. None of the philosophers could have thought of that. None of the Jews could have thought of that, even following on the heels of, of Philo. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten first principle. No, the only begotten of the Father, full of himself and all mystical things, no, full of grace and truth. And there, simply to display this grace and truth, no, of his fullness, his godness, we all receive the grace and grace. Now, beloved, it was the case that anyone who brought strange gods was suspect. That's why a certain philosopher named Socrates was executed for the drink hemlock. Because he brought, he was a purveyor of strange gods, they said. Well, John here is saying, I bring you the old God, the God who ever was. If you ever had any God principles, any God thoughts, anything that led you to the unseen God whose Godhead you do know, it's going to be Jesus. See, John here is speaking to communicate the truth of Trinity in a rather mystical way, but in a way which was designed to be a kind of link between the Greeks and the Jews and the truth as it is in Jesus, in a way that would 
set aside all of their difficulties? No, but would clearly reveal that we have a God who speaks, communicates, and saves. Hear him. This is what is John's perspective. And it ought to be ours. We have a God that we can believe on in this world, even though he's very difficult to understand. Next week, we're going to consider that mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3. But this is the God of, Christian, uh, of Christmas. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's in the vein. And this is the truth of God. It is striking, though, this is where I want to lead into a conclusion, that Jesus, the Word of God, and how John expresses this, and how the Christian church confesses this, is considered strange. It used to be that the church would run up against the witness of the strangeness of, of God and Jesus because he just hasn't heard this before. But today, today, Jesus is rejected and the church is rejected and the preaching is rejected, not only as foolishness, but as evil. Because the truth of Trinity is the introduction of a strange God who's holy and who commands repentance and who says there must be salvation because all of you have strange gods. You see, that's the truth and the rebuke of Christianity and Christianity's word made flesh. That's the truth of the one and the triunity. That's the truth of the truth of, Christian, uh, of Christianity. It's a rebuke upon everyone who said, I, myself, and I am God. That's the, truth. That's the truth of sin, of every sinner. God says, I'm triune. We say, I'm triune. Listen to me. John will bring forth a whole trinity of virtues, light and life and love. Think of that. Read John. Look for light and life and love. First John, especially, brings those three beautiful uh, triumvirate of virtues and so on. But the world says, no, we're the light. Live with us, and that's the life. Love like us, which means do whatever you want. And so they miss God, they miss life. And they're in danger of hellfire. Because, as our creed says, whosoever will be saved, it is necessary that he believe God. Triune. Do you? And that's our response. Be Trinitarian. I'm tempted to say, don't be merely God. Be Trinitarian. But of course, I would be wrong to say, don't be merely God. God is greatly God, not merely God. 
But as God, he is Trinitarian. He is Father, he is Son, and he is Holy Ghost. Remember that. Remember that he's God, your creator, and God, your savior, and God, your redeemer, and God, your sanctifier, and God, your glory. This God, whose greatness is unsearchable, who's infinite, who's incomprehensible, has nevertheless spoken a word, and he's spoken into your shore, I love you. And he comes with grace and mercy. And he's the significant other in your life. And he takes you into his fellowship. That's the mystery of Trinity. God takes us into his own Trinitarian life and fellowship. Not that we become God. That's Mormonism. That's pantheism. But he takes us into his life. Peter says, you're partaker of the divine nature. You know what that means, beloved? It means something that Jesus prayed for is come to pass. That they may be one just as we are one. He says, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you loved me. You see, John 17 is speaking here of a Trinitarian manifestation of God in the church. Characterized, and this is so appropriate for our church, by unity. Unity. Do the Father and the Son bicker? No. May there no, be no bickering among us. Do the Father and the Son act as combatants and protagonists and antagonists in the Trinity and so that one gets his way and another doesn't? That's Zeus and the rest of the gods, not our God. And in the church and our unity, in the midst of the diversity, there's a Trinitarian blessedness that you'll never find anywhere else on the planet. Oh, to escape maybe the discipline of the church, you can go somewhere else. But you're taking your own idolatry with you when you do that. Here we have the cross to reconcile sinners. Here we have God in his word to speak to us of our great peace we have in Jesus Christ. It's interesting. The society of God, that's who he is. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a family God. Takes us into his family to become a family. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of the diversity of the gifts. But he says... There's one God, one Lord, and the same Spirit. Trinity, uniting us all in the diversity. Well, beloved, what shall it be? Shall we be united? A Trinitarian church on earth, a family of God? Let us so be. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless us. We've heard things that are high and things that are known but not known in the world and things that we're not so well acquainted with. Your own life. And how you exist and how you do more than exist, you love and you love yourself and you love others outside of yourself and you take us into your love. 
This is so unfathomable, Lord. We so resist this because we love ourselves and because we think we're, we're okay on our own. And yet you remind us in your Trinitarian revelation, no one's okay on their own except to be taken into the arms of God. No one's okay just hearing the words of men. We need to hear the word of God. Lord, thanks for the word, the logos, the wonderful truth of Jesus. The word of God become flesh dwelling among us. The word now of the scriptures that we read and that teaches us that as we meditate upon that word, the word of Christ himself dwells in us richly and we are rich indeed. Bless us each with good thoughts as we reflect upon the word that you've spoken and as we participate presently in a meal together, singing together, may it be a wonderful celebration of Christmas, cross, resurrection, ascension, and the return of Jesus. Amen.